Enchanted Sky Media. 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 Live from Firehouse World in San Diego, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining us on this live edition of Code 3. With me is my co-host, Rhonda Orr, host of the Rhonda Orr Show. She's also my wife. Good evening, Rhonda. Thank you, Scott, and good evening. It's been a jam-packed day at the San Diego Convention Center. There's more than one person could ever experience in one day. So, Scott and I divided up, and with some help from our associate producer, Chad Carr, we covered as much as we possibly could. And there were actually some presentations yesterday, which is Monday, But this morning was the official opening ceremonies. Firehouse Magazine Editor-in-Chief Tim Sindelbach explained the theme for the show this year, which is new challenges, same priorities. Our challenges are different, but our priorities are the same. Our priorities are simply this, life safety, life safety. Now, I want to say this because I think it's important for the conversation. There are some that will say our life safety is priority two. I will argue this. A firefighter's life is always priority one. Always priority one. Because if you can't perform the job, you can't serve the community you're there to protect. Ask yourself, are you priority one? That doesn't say that you're not willing to take risk. We are willing to take risk, and there absolutely are justifiable risks. We raised our right hand to do that, but we remain priority one. Property preservation is priority two. Incident stabilization will always be priority three. Regardless of what our challenges are, those remain our priorities. I ask you to think about this. When you're challenged this afternoon, tomorrow, and on Thursday by the fellow instructors from the United States and around the world, keep those three priorities in mind and ask yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing in your organization to make sure you continue to focus on those three priorities and adapt to the new challenges? Tim is quite a powerful speaker. Vibrant. He sounded kind of like a politician giving a stump speech. He was very powerful up there. I was impressed. He spoke about PTSD, but one of his main points was that PTSD and mental health in the fire service has become a major issue. PTSD is real, and PTSD is taking too many of our firefighters off the line, and worse yet, creating line-of-duty deaths or firefighters who take their own lives unnecessarily. I've shared this story many times. As the editor-in-chief, I take great pride in having an endless library card that never expires. Every day, I'm getting materials from you, firefighters all around the world, wanting to tell their story. The saddest part of this job is four to one. Four articles that I receive or PTSD, firefighter suicide, or behavioral health-related articles. 
in comparison to one tactical article, how to stretch a hose line, how to ventilate a roof. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a different time. It's a different time. And we bear responsibility to get it back to where it needs to be. Focusing on the basics, cleaning up that PTSD, finding a solution for it. We bear that responsibility. And one of the talks this morning actually addressed the problem in detail. David Witzlansky, who has a master's degree in psychological counseling, said that firefighters need to ask for help, Scott, instead of being, quote, fine. And he also said in recent years, firefighter deaths from suicide are more than line-of-duty deaths from things like bullying and stress. David has been a guest on Code 3. He was a presenter on a talk called Psychological May Day, knowing when to call for help. David's a firefighter EMT with the New Brunswick, New Jersey Fire Department. His mission is to end the stigma associated with mental health in the fire department. Here's some of what he had to say this morning. And I was like, this is awful. And they're like, suck it up and deal with it. This is the way the job is. I'm like, you're kidding me, right? Suck it up and deal with it is not a good approach. But it's the way that most of us were trained and that most of us learned. It was always, we have to address the issues by ourselves. You can't talk about it because if you talk about it, you're considered weak. Social support. There's a significant relationship to psychological health. Perceived support is greater than received support. This is a dicey issue. And if your supervisors are in the room, don't answer the question. How many of you feel that your supervisors support you? Why is it that our supervisors don't support us? Are they unaware, unable, unwilling? I think it's either unaware or unable. They don't understand what they need to do to get up the support. Look at Dr. Dr. Gassaway. He's like, hey, I didn't know how to fix this problem. The guy teaches on situational awareness. I have guys come to me and I'm like, I think I know how to fix your problem and I have a clinical degree. But I don't always know the answer either. Reliable alliance, sense of security for knowing that helps available. Social integration, be part of a larger group. It's the firehouse. We have that social life, not social media, but that actual social life. We barbecue together. Our families know each other. We vacation together in some cases. We want that social aspect. Hugely important. As social creatures, we need that. Increased level of perceived support from your spouse, family, and friends. Lower levels of depression. Shocking. People tell you that you're worthy. People love you. You're less depressed. You don't have that hopelessness feeling. Amazing how that works out, isn't it? Support for family and friends and management are protective factors in reducing stress and trauma. It's okay. You go home, you need to bawl your eyes out to your wife or to your kids? Do it. Nothing wrong with that in the world. Because you are releasing the emotions that you would normally be bottling up. Because that's what we do. Suck it up. Suck it up, bottle it up, force it deep down, and eventually you're going to have an explosion. That's going to cost you your job. That's going to cost you your job. You know, he talked about how losing a feeling of belongingness sometimes occurred and how depression is something that no one still to this day wants to talk about and how depression is associated with anxiety and of course these things don't come out until a little bit later on and that's where the PTSD that everyone was talking about today really comes into play 
Now, it's interesting because you actually addressed these topics on your podcast, The Rhonda Orr Show. Absolutely. Because this is a world where people and their communication is more loosely defined. And people don't take the time to really make sure that they are tight and close with those surrounding them, that everything, quote, like he said earlier, isn't just fine. How are you? Fine. What are you doing today? Oh, not much. You know, to really be able to say to one of your brothers or sisters in the in the firefighting industry, hey, I'm having a problem, whatever it might be, divorce or uh, something happened within your work environment and how they really need to be honest and open. And that door is starting to really go open and change, change the environment. But there's so much more that we can do. And I'm really happy to be here today because that's what's going on at this conference. And other things that we heard about today dealt with firefighting directly Kurt Isaacson, a battalion chief at Escambia County, Florida, fire rescue, and a one-time guest on Code 3, talked about putting out fires in a hurry. He was talking about the idea that a booster tank can be used to dump water on a fire and get it under control in the time it takes to stretch a line to the hydrant and get it hooked up to the rig. Here's some of what he had to say about that. How long would an inch and three-quarter have taken to do this same operation? How long? Just tell me. Three or four minutes? And I won't even go that long. Does everybody agree it would probably take two minutes with an inch and three-quarter? Right? What's two minutes times 150? 300. So we take 300 gallons a minute with an inch and three-quarter. We just did it with 100 gallons using a two-and-a-half. Because one big Mike Tyson punch is better than a couple of little belly punches, right? We're wanting to overwhelm the enemy, overwhelm us so he doesn't even know what hit him. Now, since we did that in 20 seconds and we did it with 100 gallons a minute, what now could two firefighters, not this front door, but that back door, what could they do right now? They could make entry. They could force that door. When they open that door, they could literally touch the back bedroom. Would you not agree for anybody that's ever been in a mobile home? They, they could touch the door to the bathroom. They could step in and do three. They got two rooms. Now, why am I passionate about this? Because I've been to well over a dozen, if not two dozen, civilian fire fatalities in mobile homes. How many of you have been to a, a civilian fire fatality in a mobile home? Raise your hand. Raise it up high. Raise it up high. Hold it up high. Look around. People die in these things. And it's our job to give them a fighting chance by punching it and getting inside and searching. But we got to understand time in your tank. we got to understand the booster tank like we do a two and a half gallon water can. We literally have to take the water can and mathematically realize that on this engine, that's 400 water cans. For most of you in this audience today, your engine 750, that's 300 water cans. So we'll go all over the country talking about how great a water can is, but then we'll go to a fire, be a kitchen fire, and we're waiting three minutes to get water on it because we're like catching a hydrant laying in, right? 
Now, remember I started off the class. I said a hydrant's awesome every time. But you can burn a building down even catching a hydrant, can you not? If you're not properly applying the water where it needs to go. And I grew up in the fire service using that. That's where I grew up, a thousand gallons. When I went to the Pensacola Fire Department, 500 gallons, what I'd call an urban city tank. And then Escambia County, 750. And as I travel around the country, you know, I don't do a spreadsheet. I would say easily over 75% of the fire service runs a 750 booster tank. Phenomenal. 750-gallon booster tank all day long will knock down a fully involved two-car garage with water left over to get a line in the front door to stop extension and conduct the search. That's kind of a unique idea. It's suggesting that it's better to get in, dump water on it in a hurry than to set up for an extended firefight. Because if you get in and dump water in on a hurry, you might not have an extended firefight. You know, Scott, that reminds me of something else when you mentioned water. We all know the droughts in Southern Cal- well, all of California and in Arizona and how precious water is, but they are developing some amazing training tools. And of course, everyone knows that in the firefighter industry, you have to go through that tactical training that uh, was mentioned earlier and make sure that you have the proper um, apparatus to really make a difference. And so when I was on the floor talking to one of the exhibitors, he mentioned how the fire and energy department was putting together a training tool so they could actually use full-fledged blasting water pumped out to train with and recoup that water and use it again and again and again and recycle the water. And I thought that was so amazing because he said to me that he walked into a fire uh Uh, after a fire had happened and one of the firemen had never been trained or used live water to put out a fire and burned his arms and wrists and up to his elbows and parts of his face because he didn't have the training with live water. Can you imagine? It's hard to imagine, but the droughts have been extreme here. So I guess that's one of the hazards that people don't think of. All right, let's move on. Um, This morning we also heard a talk called Modern Writ High Speed Low Drag given by Jake Hoffman, a firefighter from Toledo, Ohio. This was actually a fairly sad story because this was a story of two line-of-duty deaths where two firefighters called a mayday and the crews just could not find them, even though it was a small building that they were trapped in. Here's what he had to say. Because at the end of the day, like I just said, we thought we, we, thought we knew what we were doing. We thought we were good. We'd done drills. We had the gear. We had a lot of really good firefighters at the scene. But experience is always what you have right after you need it. Why have things changed for us? January 26, 2014, it was just a a winter Sunday afternoon. It was snowing, it was cold, Um, just hanging out. I was at Engine 16 at the day, um, working with a good crew. We were having a good time. Just Sundays are probably like any engine house. It's kind of laid back, right? A big breakfast. Not a whole lot of chores. You check the rig out, push stuff on the rig. And uh, 
All of a sudden, I get a text. I'm not paying attention. I get a text, and it says, hey, man, there's, there's a good fire going over on Magnolia. So, all right. So one of my buddies who was working across the city, I would turn the radio on, start listening. So by the time that uh, dispatch is over with, uh, the first two engines are already on the road. Uh, engine three, the first two engine, um, normally the ranch house is just two blocks away from where this fire's at. It was getting renovated, so they were shipped across the river to another firehouse and right out of there. Uh, this isn't an, a com comprehensive overview of our line of duty deaths, but I got to give you a little background to show you uh, where we've come. So we lost Steve and Jamie here. Jamie was a rookie. Uh, this was going to be his first working fire in the city of Toledo. He'd only been on the job a couple months out of the academy. Uh, Engine 3 is usually a pretty good uh, inner city house, but as is always the case when you get a rookie, it seems like nothing happens, right? It's always on his day off or his Kelly day or something. So he's excited. He's kicking his shoes off to run across, across the apparatus floor to the rigs. And Steve Machinsky was in the back of the rig with him, very, very experienced guy, um, just awesome firefighter, been on the job about 16 years at the time. So they're dispatched to Magnolia Street. This is the fire building right here. Ordinary construction built in about 1880 is what they could determine by the city records. So what are the big things that we have learned from Magnolia Street? And again, this isn't a comprehensive overview of this incident, just kind of focused on RIP. Our focus has shifted from having a whole bunch of crap to being flexible and rapid response. How, like, the time to occupation. How fast can we get inside this building? No matter if it's through a ladder, if we gotta breach a wall, if we dive in through a door, whatever it is, how fast can we get in to the, uh, to the down firefighter. We gotta commit additional crews ASAP. So even though you can do a drill where you drag one guy through, through a house or through a structure with three or four people, the reality is it might not take three or four people to get them out, probably will. But what it's gonna take eight or 10 people for is to find them. I mean, like we just said, that the second floor of Magnolia Street was very small, it was five, 600 feet. We had two engine crews, eight people operating on the on upstairs, excuse me, Engine 7 and Engine 17 both operating upstairs, while Squad 7 was on the first floor searching because they thought maybe they had fallen through the floor. So 11 people, 24 minutes until both firefighters were out and on their way to the hospital. It's, it's a very manpower intensive operation. So we started off by saying our old RIP model just doesn't work anymore. This isn't our department, but this is very similar to what our RIT teams used to be doing. They might go throw ladders, they might force a door, they might cut some window bars, but once that's all done, you have a bunch of guys standing out front with a Stokes basket loaded down with 186 pounds of stuff, just waiting for something to happen. So FDNY looked at May Days from 1998 through 2008 and found these statistics. Some of the bigger things for me, because a lot of the other studies don't show this, were over half the time the face piece was found off Three quarters of the time, there's no air left in the SCBA by the time they get to the firefighter. And then 12 minutes and 41 seconds from mayday to removal. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that three quarters of the time, first alarm units found them, which is going to jive with what you're going to see here from Project Mayday, is that crews operating on the interior are typically finding people first. So does that, does that mean I'm saying we don't need red at all? No, not, that's not at all what I'm saying, but we have to ad adapt and evolve our, our procedures and our mentality based off of what we're seeing on the fire ground. So, and that was 
Jake Hoffman talking about modern writ. And we had a chance to drop in on Lieutenant Benjamin Martin of Enrico County, Virginia, as he discussed preserving and influencing fire service culture. He addressed the importance of understanding culture and when change, especially from tradition, is necessary and when it's not. And, you know, sometimes it's not easy to make these changes, is it, Scott? It's not, and here's what he had to say about an example of that. The only uh, thing I was told by the fire chief when he called me was, hey, you know, just keep your head down. There's some challenges I think that you're going to have to face. Uh, I don't exactly have my thumb on yet, but I'm confident you'll be able to handle it. So I arrived the first day, and I've got a rookie who's 21, and my senior guy is my senior guy. He's 67 years old, and that's my engine company. The truck company has a 25-year lieutenant, a four-year guy, and a five-year guy. So it's an interesting dynamic that they've put in the uh, senior guy, 67, on the engine come to find out they trust him on the ladder. So the third day, we go out. They had just converted the engine at this time over to Minuteman. This is when the nozzle bore stuff was becoming really popular. And I asked the guys, I said, are you comfortable pulling this hose? And they said, no. So we went to train. It just so happened to be a Saturday. It was about 10.30, and we stayed out until about noon. Um, guys did well. I was pleased, and I sat down in my office to log the training in for Target Solutions. I get a knock on the door, and it's the four-year guy. And he goes, hey, Luke, can I talk with you? I said, sure. When I asked around before I got there, this was the guy, apparently, that the ship pivoted on. Like, he was the guy that had the outstanding mirror paper and that was going to help me change the culture of this ship. And he goes, hey, man, I'm real excited you're here. You know, really looking forward to training. I just wanted to offer you some words of wisdom. I said, sure. I mean, I mind you, I've been doing this for 15 years. And he said, uh, if you want to get along here, then don't ask us to train. And I said, what? And he goes... If you, if you want to get along with the guys here, don't ask us to train. And I said, well, are you talking about on a weekend or are you talking about in general? He's like, well, he's like, kind of both. Uh, we don't train on the weekend. That's our time. We're promised that, which is not true. And he goes, and uh, our previous lieutenant didn't believe in pulling hose. We did that in recruit school, so we don't need to do that. And so I'd like to tell you that I read him the riot act, but I was in such disbelief as to what he was telling me that I was like, you're, you're a f- like, you know, I'm not going to lose my cool. This is a test. Like, I'm not going to do that. So I walk out and uh, come to find out he was dead serious. He was dead serious. And I thought to myself, how is it that a guy that's been on the department less than four years has the courage to come up to the lieutenant and tell him we're going to pull hose on the engine? Because the thing is, he wasn't being rash. He wasn't trying to be arrogant. He was genuinely trying to be nice to give me a heads up that I had my work cut out for me if I was going to change that culture. Uh, and so I did. It took me two years to do it. And I learned a ton in the process. And uh, I'd like to tell you I did it perfectly, and I did not. And I'd like to tell you that it went smooth, and it did not. I'd like to tell you that it was popular, and it was not. And if you guys have ever experienced anything like that, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Changing culture is often very difficult. In all cultures, right, Scott? Well, it's true. You know, people say it's like trying to turn a battleship. Sometimes that's not even enough. (laughs) 
And finally, I was on the expo floor this afternoon, and I got an eye-opener from Casey Scott, the CEO of Derotic Emergency Equipment. They distribute HME apparatus, among other things. She told me some of the developments that have been going on recently in apparatus, and I was fascinated to hear this. Uh, focusing more on the wildland urban interface because of the uh, obvious uh, issue with the wildfire season that we had this past summer and still continues today. So really making vehicles more maneuverable, um, easier to operate, and uh, and especially for new new uh, uh, engineers and operators coming into the fire service, the easier they are to operate, the more likely we'll be able to pull more people into the fire service uh, for the millennials and younger generations. Um, so yeah, so we're looking at uh, tablet operation of pumps um, and all kinds of fun stuff like that moving forward. But. We haven't yet unveiled some of the new technology, but it's pretty cool. (laughs) That's pretty funny, isn't it? Well, you've got to do what it takes to uh, attract (laughs) younger people to the fire service these days. Absolutely, and technology is it. So, even though we are live, we're still doing the trivia question. Scott has that. This one might be too easy, but I'll give it to you anyway. What are the five functions of a quint? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. All right, the answer to the trivia question, a quint is a quint because it has a pump, water tank, hose, aerial device, and ground ladders. Love it or hate it, the quint is here for good, and I know some people listening right now do hate it. I think it's a great idea, but I'm not there, so (laughs) sounds good to me. That about wraps it up for today's live coverage of Firehouse World from San Diego. We'll be right back here tomorrow night at 6 Pacific and 9 Eastern. I'm Rhonda Orr. And I'm Scott Orr, and we'll be back in tomorrow night. We'll see you then. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.